are listening to the playlist podcast i'm your host eric mcclanahan and joining me today to chat about the 2013 sundance film festival is contributor Corey everett hey Corey. hey what's up and our fearless leader rodrigo perez how's it going rod good how are you guys good 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 so i guess start out with Corey. um is this your first year to sundance or have you been there before uh, this was actually my third year going to the fest. Uh, my first year was 2011, and I thought on the whole this was uh, easily the best lineup of the past three years. Uh, just I saw more films that I really responded to than than either of the last two years. I, I I thought it was a really good good year to go. Nice, nice. And uh, Rod, same questions to you. Um, well, it's good that Corey said that because I mean I I've, I haven't been to Sundance before, but. Um, you know, I obviously catch up with the film. So yeah, that's how I kind of felt about it. I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Some of the lineups in the last little while were aren't that exciting. And I felt this one was pretty exciting. And I think I made the fairly last minute decision to be like, wow, this is pretty good. I should go. And I did. And um, I'm really glad I did. I saw a lot of good movies. Uh, and Rod, what's the, what was, since this was your first year, what was your kind of, what was the experience like of the festival for you? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a little bit funny just because um, there's a lot of people that sort of uh, I've heard a lot of horror stories about Sundance mm-hmm. um, so um, that was sort of my uh, worry going in that it's really difficult to navigate and that it's uh, um, it's a little full of industry people and um, it's one of the more difficult festivals to um make your films or get into and things like that. And while all those things are essentially true to some degree, I don't think they were as bad as I thought they were going to be. So, um, yeah, I, I got into everything I wanted to. Um, um, and it wasn't, you know, it, yeah, I, I, I didn't think it was as hectic or as, I mean, it is a little on the outset going in, but once you're there, it's, it's, it's pretty navigable and, and I liked it. Well, as an outsider, I, I've yet to, to attend the festival. It seems that maybe a, some of it is, or a lot of the festival seems to be geared towards like getting celebrities there, you know, parties and things like that. Is there is there enough focus on the films? Do you think, uh, Rod? Uh, yeah. Also, being from Toronto, I know that Toronto is way worse for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Um, it's especially just being from Toronto and and knowing the the sort of media community voice, it's like all about that. So um, while I think there is probably a preponderance of, you know, of, uh, just put on to celebrities and that sort of thing, I didn't really go out. I just went to go, mo- I just went to movies. So it seemed very movies focused to me. I'm sure other people's experience, if you go and do other things, it can be about other things in films. But for me, I just saw movies, so yeah, it was a pretty good festival. Because the quality of the films were there, so that's all that really mattered, and so therefore it was good. Yeah, it seems all around this year that there was much more consistent uh, in the quality of films. Like last year, it was kind of Beasts of the Southern Wild took so much, you know, of the attention away from everything else, and it seemed like there just wasn't as many other interesting films. Whereas this year, uh, 
I just I felt like I kept reading good reviews coming in from both of you guys. We had a feature that that was posted today on the website on the playlist uh, on IndieWire, and it was um, by Oliver Littleton, and it was our Sundance Wrap, and it's the the five best films of the festival that uh, that you can find on the playlist right now. And uh, the one of the first ones listed on there, I believe both of you saw and both of you loved, was Ain't Them Body Saints. Um, uh, Corey, why don't we uh, kick it off to you and uh, just kind of. You know, give me your thoughts on the film. Yeah, um, I really loved the movie. It was funny. I think I've mentioned this to Rob, but I've known the filmmaker David Lowry kind of casually online for the last decade or so, and we've met a handful of times. I've run into him at the last couple of Sundances. So when I heard that his kind of bigger debut, he's done a few uh, kind of smaller micro-budget movies before, but this, you know, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara starring in it was really a big deal. Um, I was really kind of excited to see it and check it out, and then, you know, also nervous for him because the buzz going into the festival that this was a movie that inexplicably, I guess just due to the cast, because it wasn't, you know, because people had really seen anything he'd done before. They were just putting, like, this will be the Beasts of the Southern Wild of this year sort of expectations on the movie, which is almost always not going to pan out that way. And just about 90% of the time you go into Sundance, the movies that people are looking forward to are almost never the movies that people come out talking about. And I think this is a really, really rare case where... Everybody was kind of hoping this would be something great and something different, and then it actually kind of delivered on those expectations, even if it was a little different than people expected. Uh, Corey, where do you where do you think those ex? I mean, because I, I hear what you're saying, the expectations going in for these films. But where do they where are they coming from for something that's like like this film? Like nobody knows anything about it. They've hardly seen it. Who's seen it? Where this buzz would derive from? Do you have any idea? I don't think anybody's seen it, and I think that's why. That that method of picking movies doesn't often pan out because people kind of go in. Most years at Sundance, the filmmakers are basically unknown. It's it's most people's first movies there, so people kind of pick and choose based on who's in the movie. And if they see a lot of recognizable actors, then those inevitably become kind of the more anticipated movies to get into at the start of the fest. So you have things like you know My Idiot Brother, the Paul Rudd movie, you know, yeah. with a great cast and Zoe Deschanel, and everybody's in it. And then at the end of the festival, like, it's a good movie, but, you know, that's not the movie that people are talking about. Generally, it's the movie that comes out of nowhere, you know, the Beasts of the Southern Wilds, the, you know, things like that, that people really kind of get excited about because they're, those are the real discoveries. And the, the movies that happen to land the bigger stars are rarely the ones that end up being the most memorable. And this was really just kind of uh, goes against that rule because I, I did find it to be easily one of the best things I saw at the festival, despite the fact that it was so heavily, you know, hyped and has such a, you know, recognizable cast. It is funny that, that the hype, because it's like hyped about what, like, it, you know, nobody knows out, out of, you know, some, uh, hardcore indie people, not a people, lot, not a lot of people know David Lowry's films, but yeah, because of the cast. But I think that's just generally, um, emblematic and a bit of indicative of Sundance. There's something about the timing of it. It's the new year. People have just sort of, you know, been really groggy over the holidays. And then this festival starts and people are just, it's like a time to get excited. And so people really, really do get excited. And, and you know, expectations always tend to be really high for um, all the films. But I don't know. I, I mean, personally, me, I check, I check every expectation at the door at every film. Yeah. Would I ever see just because the I, I don't buzz and hype and 
it has nothing to do with movies. You know what I mean? It has some it's stuff to do with the business of movies and that sort of thing. But it, I, I, I don't know. It's just a, if you're if you're going into movies thinking about that when you're actually reviewing them or writing about them, I think it can, tends to be kind of destructive and not really what the movies are about. So I, I just check it at the door and I don't really have time for it. All right. So, Rod, what is what is Anthem Body Saints? What is it about? Uh, I guess it's a somewhat familiar um, uh, outlaw story in the vein of uh, some people called it, you know, Badlands like Terrence Malick. But <clears throat> it kind of uh, I think the, the, the general narrative for these stories is lovers on the run. And I think Lowry tries to subvert that somewhat by um, making it lovers who are, you know, usually there's a, a crime that they build up or they do in the first act and then, and then they're on the run together. This is lovers who have been, the crime happens, this is lovers who are separated. I don't want to give away too much, but they're essentially like separated through most of the picture. And Anthem Body Saints is a story of an outlaw who breaks out of prison and sets out across the Texas countryside to find his wife and the daughter that was born while he was in prison. The movie begins, and this isn't a spoiler, but it begins with them getting caught because that's usually where the stories end. And so we decided as these archetypal characters meet you know, their, their fate, that's about the point where you can really start digging into them and figuring out what really is going on inside of them and, and what makes them tick. One of the things that I think is um... Uh, that I really responded to, and I think is powerful, is just sort of like you know they don't you don't have even a lot of screen time together, but there's that sense that that sense of longing is so powerful in the movie, um, and and so it's sort of I guess about lovers who've been separated by a crime, and then uh, how they try and reconnect years later, and um, yeah, I, I agree with Corey. It's, it's a great film. It's a it's a very moody slow burner in a kind of uh, People call it Malick, but I think it's much more something like uh, Cormac McCarthy or a old uh, Will Oldham meets like 16 horsepower song, like an old <laughs> folk ballad that's um, – I don't know if you guys ever heard 16 horsepower, but they're this band, this uh, indie band who did these sort of like gospel rock Americana songs that always built like they were like a – a bad moon rising or a storm on the horizon that was brewing that would roll into town and you knew it was you knew it was sinister and you knew it was a bad deal and you knew and you you, you saw that storm and you were like let's close up the windows because something bad is brewing and coming into town and that's exactly what this movie reminded me of I, I agree with everything that Rod's saying I, I definitely kind of the first touch points that anyone would think when watching the movie or if you're trying to get a sense for people who haven't seen it is I would definitely think Badlands era Terrence Malick and kind of a Bonnie and Clyde type story, but there's definitely a lot of other influences in there as well. I was actually interviewing um, David uh, the other day, which will run on the site soon, and he was mentioning uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller by Robert Altman being mm -hmm. a big influence on this, and I uh, also thought that the the cinematography is really striking. It actually picked up an award. Um, uh, I believe it's Bradford Young. Is that the cinematographer's name? He shot Pariah, yeah. and he he did this film and uh, one other one at Sundance this year, and uh, he picked up an award for that. And one of the things I thought was so really just different about this movie is how unafraid they were to let the blacks get really black in some of the interior scenes. It almost reminded me of like a Gordon Willis 
you know, 1970s Godfather thing where it's just it, the interiors got super saturated, super dark and in a way that you don't see too often and, and helped lend it a distinctive kind of visual uh, palette. Yeah, nice. agreed. Well, and you guys are citing, you know, some some heavy hitters there when describing the film, you know, Malick, Badlands era, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Bonnie and Clyde. Is there is there a sense that this film is not necessarily original or it's is it just the way the story is told? Um, I, I, I think I think it's original. It's just that the if you get the 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 synopsis or like you know uh, the uh, the basic idea it sounds like pretty familiar but there's a mood and tone to it that's really really dark and it's what kind of makes the movie fresh that's like you know I mean we talked I guess Badlands but have have we seen the I mean I guess it's familiar familiar but have you seen like the the moody like dark storm rolling into town kind of version of, of Badlands. Badlands is I mean lit very bright it's mm-hmm. it's it's poetic it's beautiful. This has got some of that sun, it's sort of like, you know, sun-kissed photography and stuff like that, but there's a lot more mud and dust and 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 you know, grain and texture in this one. And 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 its heart is kind of wounded and black around the edges. Okay. Okay. And you know, it's it's, it's fair to say this is one of, if not the best reviewed films of the festival. And I, I think what that calls into question is, you know, it was picked up for distribution by IFC. So one of the smaller kind of indie distributors. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole idea of, uh, you know, the the buzz and all the, the noise and everything that comes out of Sundance. And then the reality for when that film comes to theaters and, and a general audience can see it. I mean, even Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is pretty much an all around success from last year didn't exactly, you know, light up the box office, you know, there's still a lot of people who haven't seen that film. Uh, one of the, one of the coolest things about going to Sundance really is seeing these movies basically completely blind where there's no poster, there's no trailer. I mean, there's not even a distributor that gives you any sense of what the tone uh, of the movie's going to be. There's r- really no expectations for it. There's a two sentence, two sentence synopsis and like one picture to go off of. So you, you're going in about as blind as, as uh, you know, you could ever expect for basically anything you're going to see all year. And so one of the interesting things is when you're watching these movies to kind of start to get a sense of, you know, well, is this going to play outside of Sundance? And there's a lot of great movies that don't get seen by a lot of people. And then there's a lot of movies that are, you know, fairly more commercial and you could kind of see taking off. I'll give you an example is that last year, basically, uh, you know, I was at the very first screening of Beast of the Southern Wild, uh, not to keep bringing up that example, but, uh, you know, I thought, you know, that's a really good movie. I can see it, it picking up like a solid little following. And that seems absolutely the type of movie that a oscilloscope would pick up. And they are a great indie label mm-hmm. and they have great taste and they reach a certain audience um, very well. But I did not at all see it as a Fox Searchlight movie, you know, as a Little Miss Sunshine type. It just didn't at you know, I would have never thought that they would have picked that movie up. And on the other hand, I saw another movie called Safety Not Guaranteed, which was kind of a really solid, you know, uh, comedy, time travel, you know, little bit of drama in there. Aubrey Plaza starring vehicle with Mark Duplass in it. And I thought, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a Fox Searchlight summer sleeper hit, you know, easily. Mm-hmm. And then to my surprise, you know, a few days later, I'm standing in line in front of a Fox Searchlight executive who's telling somebody his favorite movie at the festival is Beast of the Southern Wild. And less than a day later, they picked up the movie and uh, Safety Not Guaranteed went to a much 
smaller label ended up not really being a hit. And meanwhile, Fox Searchlight has pushed that movie and people responded to it. So, you know, while it hasn't lit the box office on fire, I think if it's made 10 or $15 million on whatever the budget was, it's a solid success, especially when you look at the Oscars and the, and the fans it's picked up across the industry. I mean, it's, it's really, it, it can be really surprising. It's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I guess there's no way to really guess what's going to happen and what's going to turn out with each film. Um, Rod, how, how about you? I mean, this being your first time at the festival, we've all heard about these, you know, films that are huge in the festival get bought up for an expensive price and don't really perform. Um, mm-hmm. We've cited that in a, in a piece uh, recently, another one by Ollie Littleton, you know, ton, mm-hmm. sun, 10 Sundance hits, 10 flops. You know, he cited some of the misses like Hamlet 2 and Happy Texas. Um, I don't know. What's your perception of this, uh, this kind of thing that happens? <clears throat> Um, I have two thoughts on it, I guess. One being that, yes, there is a big disconnect on the sort of signal to noise ratio that comes out of Sundance, especially if you're not there. Um, you know, these films get – the noise is, is, is really crazy and these some of these films get bought for crazy amounts of money and sometimes, as we've seen in, in the past, they don't connect. Um, on the same At the same time, I think, you know, that stuff is a little bit relative in the way that like, okay, for – Ain't them body saints is it may not connect with a bigger audience and and I don't know who else would have bought it but I that doesn't to me that doesn't I mean that's just doesn't matter to the film the film's great and if it doesn't if there's not a bigger audience for it that's a shame but uh, it doesn't affect the quality of the movie so I'm I'm a little bit torn in between the idea of that like but then again you know some of these films. Um, you know, like, uh, I actually kind of like Hamlet too. I think it's a little bit silly, but, um, and enjoyable. Um, but yeah, some of these, some of these films, um, the reality is that the, that the, the buzz and, and what comes out the other end is not always, um, not always syncs up. And, and I guess at the end of the day though, really that the only loser there for the most part, is the film studio, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they're the one who forked down um, uh, an enormous, extraordinary amount of money for something that they had high expectations for and didn't um, translate. But that's the gamble that everybody does, right? I mean, a lot of films uh, a lot of films that we all love sometimes don't translate into big audiences, um, and a lot of things that we think are terrible, uh, you know, you think of January horror films or something like that do connect really, really well. So mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, yeah, I guess it, uh, I'm a little, I don't know. It's relative. And at the same time, sure. It's a, it's a part of, it's a part of what happens, I guess. I, 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 I guess the only, when I'm against that idea that yes, there's that signal to noise and doesn't connect, but I, I guess I'm, I'm okay with being like whatever, because if the films are good, like then that's all that matters. What were the two big purchases this year? I think were Don John's Addiction, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt film, and what the Way Way Back. The Way the Way Way Back was bought for yep. nearly ten, right? Right, right. And did I both- never saw that one? So Corey okay. Corey saw it. So, but I, from what I understand, it seems like, uh, you know, it's from the writers and uh, the writers of the Descendants, who is their director directorial debut. And you know, Fox Searchlight are no are they know what to do with a a, a 
an indie but broad mainstream comedy and, and they can make big bucks out of it like they have and things like The Descendants, which when you think about it, The Descendants is a very small scale human, not even that funny, I mean, because it's more dramatic, little uh, little film and, and, you know, what they took that all the way to, to the Oscars and, you know, I didn't end up winning that much, but it was a big player in, in, uh, in the, uh, the Oscar season. So, you know, they can, they can really run those things and, and really max them out to their full potential. Yeah. They're kind of like Fox searchlight seems like the last like mini major that's left and they're just, they're, they seem to be, they, I guess they have a system in place and they know what they're doing. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the way, way back, what were your thoughts on the film, Corey? Uh, I liked it. it I, I definitely, I mean, again, it was kind of a case where as soon as it's over, you th- you think that's, I mean, that, again, is a Fox Searchlight movie. That could be a summer sleeper hit. You know, I mean, honestly, I feel like it's, not to make the comparison, because they, they are different, but the, the closest thing to A Little Miss Sunshine as far as a Sundance movie in the past five years or so has it being a box office hit. I mean, there hasn't been like a hundred or even $50 million breakout hit from Sundance probably since Little Miss Sunshine, which was, you know, now almost six years ago. So I feel like this is probably the best bet at, at there being like a decent, you know, moderately, maybe, you know, $50 million hit for them. I don't see it being up for Oscars, but it is a solid, um, solid little movie. I mean, again, it's, it's very familiar. It's, it's, uh, um, as Rod said, written by uh, Nat Faxon and Jim Rash, the two guys who, wrote the original script for The Descendants before Alexander Payne rewrote it. And um, uh, it's it's kind of a coming-of-age story. It's a quiet kid who goes to um, his family's beach house for the summer. Uh, his, uh, not stepfather, but his mom uh, mom's boyfriend is Steve Carell, who's kind of a jerk to him. And so he is, uh, you know, forced to eventually come out of his shell. He starts uh, working at the local water park where Sam Rockwell works and... Um, Sam Rockwell is very Sam Rockwell in this role. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, it's really just, it's, it's fun. It's, it's light and it's got, it's got enough, um, of a personal touch to it where it doesn't, you know, sacrifice all the emotion for a joke where it feels just, you know, just meaty enough that it's not totally insubstantial. And, uh, that's the impression I got from the Q and a afterwards too, that there were some, you know, kind of personal things in this movie, even if it does have a much more uh, conventional uh, framework. Okay. Okay. And Don John's Addiction, did both of you see this? Uh, yep. We did. Did that sell for, I, I can't even remember. I was right in the middle of Sundance. So I don't remember how much it sold for. Was that a big buy? Yeah. I, I think it was the second uh, largest next to uh, way, way back. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that that's interesting because I wouldn't think the peel is, I mean, it's a terrifically entertaining movie and it's, and it's fun and it's, it, it's a good little film, um, but there's a lot of there's a whole porn aspect to a, a to it, which will make it at least an R rating. And uh, you know, I read an interview with Joseph Gordon Lovett, maybe it was on our site actually, um, <laughs> and um, where he said, you know, the cut that's at Sundance may not necessarily be the cut that's at in theaters because you know he didn't have to test his cut for Sundance. You just run whatever you want at Sundance. Um, and he said that cut could be considered NC 17, but, um, the film, the cut that, that, that goes into, uh, theaters will have to be R cause that's what he wants. Um, so, you know, that'll be interesting because, you know, little Miss Sunshine, uh, beast of the Southern wild, even, you know, actually another film that broke that $15 million ceiling, the kids are all right. 
made 20 million oh, right. domestically. Yes. Okay. Um, actually, that's an R-rated film, so maybe I'm, yep. I'm going against my point. Um, but I'll just be curious to see how big that connects. I mean, that's relatively Relativity Media who bought it, and they're fairly new, and they don't have a lot of experience with um, indie Sundance pictures. Anyhow, they produce a lot of their own house films in house, and they have got a, you know a good slate of stuff coming out, um, especially that Scott Cooper film later this year. Um, but um, yeah, it'll, I'll, I'll be curious to see how people respond to that. I guess I'm always curious to see how what I think, what I say, what I call you know civilians think of films in general. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm always curious as to like how they're going to respond to. Uh, films at, at Sundance too. And, and also, you know, a film festival is a, is a, is a weird barometer to gauge films because you're there with an audience that are gen- generally cinephiles and film lovers. And, you know, the rest of the world is not that they're consumers. And, you know, some of these people just go to the movies on Fridays for fun. So it'll be, yeah, I'm always just curious to see how they'll, how, what the, the public at large who are not cinephiles, how they're going to respond to something. Am I being too reductive to say that Don John's addiction sounds kind of like shame, shame light, maybe a little bit? Uh, it's a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a full on comedy. Well, you didn't think that I mean, none of you found shame funny, though. Seriously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah. So, OK, so it's it's clearly it's a much more entertaining take on a sort of similar story. Or is it just like it's a it's a it's a guy who it, it's got some serious uh, undertones to it. It's, it's about a guy who essentially can't connect with women because he's or he can't connect with women in, in a fulfilling way because he's pornography consumed and it's sort of changed his uh, perception of not necessarily women is like well, he is a bit of a misogynist. He is a misogynist, but at the same time, it's more about how his uh, how sex has changed for him through pornography, and therefore love has changed for him because he's always distanced from every female because he's never really felt truly he's never truly felt love because he's never had that experience because his his experience of sex is filtered through pornography. But it's a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a comedy. Okay, unlike Shame. Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed the movie. I was surprised, actually. And I, something I said to Rod during the festival is basically when any actor decides to direct, especially for the first time, I mean, I mm-hmm. think it's natural. I'm immediately skeptical and probably going to be judging judging the movie maybe harsher than, than just kind of a director that came out of nowhere. And honestly, watching the entire movie, it's so well done and so well put together. I mean, if this had been some, you know, no-name director, I would still say keep an eye on this guy because he really knows what he's doing. I mean, honestly, there's not a kind of showy moment out of place or a, a camera angle that that doesn't sit right. And a lot of times, you kind of forgive some of these smaller mistakes, you know, in Sundance movies because they have a lot of other things that they get right. And so you can kind of look at the rough edges and, and, and look past that kind of stuff. But honestly, this was so well put together and so such a confident debut that um, I was, I was really impressed. Yeah. It's a very, very confident debut and you wouldn't know that it's the first thing he's ever made. Cool. Cool. All 
All right. Well, you guys are agreeing like way too much right now. So <laughs> let's let's get into a couple. Um, I know I know there's a couple films you guys don't necessarily agree in. I can think of one for sure. <laughs> well, for we're gonna get to Stoker next, right? Because I I I was so bummed to hear your thoughts on that, Rod. Because I'm really looking forward to the film. But mm-hmm. uh, let let's start with Breathe In, um, which which I believe you two disagree on. And Corey, mm-hmm. why, Corey, why don't you start with your your thoughts on the film? Yeah, um, I was a big fan of uh, director uh, writer director Drake DeRamis' last movie, Like Crazy. I mm-hmm. saw that at Sundance two years ago. Uh, it was on my top ten list that year, and I thought um, it, the movie was, as if you haven't seen it, a mostly improvised <laughs> tale of a long-distance relationship uh, between Felicity Jones and Anton Yelchin, and I, I thought if you can kind of forgive the beginning part where they um, don't seem to have as much chemistry as you wish they did. Uh, if you can get over that, everything else in the movie about the long distance relationship and the way the movie deals with time is so accurate and so truthful and, and just captures that, um, relationship falling apart in, in a way that you just have not really seen before on screen, or at least I hadn't in a way that really kind of, um, dug pretty deep into me. And, uh, so I was really looking forward to, um, his latest movie, breathe in, uh, which uh, has uh, Guy Pierce in it, um, uh, Amy Ryan as his wife, and uh, Felicity Jones is also in it. And it's about a kind of middle-aged guy, used to be in a band, and now he's a music teacher, uh, lives in upstate New York with his wife, and they have a, uh, I guess it's like a foreign exchange student uh, from England come to stay with them, which is uh, Felicity Jones from Like Crazy. And then you start to see the... Uh, stirrings of interest and it i just thought it it became just the one one millionth uh, uh, midlife crisis kind of infidelity drama and the, the most disappointing thing is it i just felt like it had really nothing new to add to that and it was just so kind of by the numbers i was surprised at how long they they were drawing things out that seemed you know inevitable for anyone who's they basically made the movie like no one had ever made a movie about this topic before and it took about an hour for anything to start happening and it, it just seemed like really – it really missed the mark for me. And it broke my heart because I, I – like I said, I really dug his last movie and I it just totally felt flat for me. Well, um, yeah, I guess – I mean you know the way Drake makes his movies is like I think – I personally think smart in that way that yeah, he didn't really think about that – yeah, maybe some people have seen this movie before and they know where like this sort of infidelity story is going, but they spend a lot of time with like, you know, working the emotional truths of, of these characters and this story and where they're going. And I, that's where, um, that's where the movie really, really works for me. Cause Guy Pierce is fantastic in it. Amy Ryan is fantastic in it. Felicity Jones, the, the actors are so good and the mood and the tone is so, um, it's so specific and it, it's so like, you know, it's like a, it's like a moody, sad, melancholic sonnet. And, um, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe it's, um, it's the, it, the, the, the tragic element of it or where it's heading is we all know that, but that's okay. I mean, we've a lot of stories, you know, uh, Shakespeare, whatever Greek tragedies, we know where they're heading, but it's not about where they're heading. It's the journey to get there. Um, and so in that sense, I thought it was uh, quite good. I, I mean, I, I will concede that the, the, there's, a, there's the last, not even the last act, but there's sort of a crescendo that happens of all these things. And 
um, it's a little uh, uh, predictable, or I guess, or you really feel like you know where it's going. But even then, like the movie doesn't end on. I, I don't want to get away, give away too much of it, but you know, it's not like it, it's not it's not as predictable as it could be. And and there's just there's just some great performances in it. The performances really uh, sell it. Drake is, is is amazing at capturing mood and tone and sort of like this really naturalistic um, uh, way he just captures um, the, the 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 actors and they're sort of in their element. I don't know. I I really responded to it, but I I, I recognize it's not perfect, but I still really really liked it. I can't argue with what he's saying. I mean, it, it is it does have. A- a mood to it. I mean, the same as the last movie. I, I get he's trying to make movies in this style. It just, just really fell flat for me. And just the longer it went on, I just started to really check out. And I, I was surprised actually because there was some um, unintentional laughter in the theater. And I was surprised that Rod had, was so into it as he was because I had leaned over a few times to go, you know, make make a snide remark of some kind <laughs> to let him know that I was I was not into it, and I, I was surprised. The, the laughter, though, the laughter was definitely that kind of like uncomfortable laughter that happens in because there's a lot of uncomfortable situations that happen in that movie, and the movie's not about the plot; it's about the interactions with the characters, where they go, the moods, um, and and some of the stuff like the longing and the heartache and the sort of like this sort of like uh, love that they know they can't do the. The fact that they're so, you know, they 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 have these barriers there, is so just heart crushing sometimes. It's so like everyone's can't get really what they want, and but they also desperately want it. And it, I found that quite to be quite moving. But the laughter to me, yeah, I, I just felt it's it's a it's a pretty uncomfortable movie in spots, especially near the end where the things get ugly. And um, uh, so I felt like the laughter was on on. Uh, it was like an uncomfortable laughter where people don't know what to do in those situations, so they laugh, and um, and 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 I just and I like films that that get to that sort of raw, naked, ugly sort of you know emotion. Come and say hello to your uncle Charlie. What do you want from me? To be friends. We don't need to be friends. family maybe we could talk about you're living here with charlie like this speaking of unintentionally funny moments for movies uh uh rod i believe you tweeted that uh Park Chan-wook's English language debut, Stoker, had what was it? The the most unintentionally hilarious uh, masturbation scene was that was that right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Ah. Uh, that's what it was to me. I I almost <laughs> burst out laughing, but I I people seem to not find it as funny as I did, so I I like covered my mouth. But I was <laughs> I found that movie just to be. I, uh, I put it this way: if Park Chan-wook wouldn't have directed it. You would have had this thriller with a bunch of stars in it that people would have just responded to differently. I think um, there's uh, it's it's just a I felt it was kind of like a kind of cheesy, kind of corny Cinemax thriller that about family that uh, it was it some felt sometimes felt like it was five different movies. 
um, and very tell like it, it's it's also very Hitchcocky and it's very much like a shadow of a doubt. But a Hitchcock film with zero suspense and, and, and like like it telegraphs everything at the very beginning. Um, you you know it, it tells you everything like like along the way at every point. Well, and it sounds I think I I read a review of it somewhere and it was another negative review. It wasn't yours, Rod, but. They mentioned that it was kind of the worst of, uh, imagine like the worst kind of Brian De Palma film. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And that, yeah, that definitely gives me pause. Cause like, yeah, there, I mean, De Palma has his moments, but there are times where I, I just can't stand the things he does in his films. Um, Corey, would you agree with that assessment? Um, I was surprised at how how much I actually enjoyed myself during this movie because Rod had kind of warned me. I think I saw it the 9 a.m. the morning after it had premiered and I heard some very mixed things and Rod had said some very negative things. And so I really went in with very low expectations and was surprised at how much I enjoyed myself. I will totally agree that the screenplay is kind of a mess, particularly maybe 30 or 40 minutes in. It takes a turn where it just gets kind of ridiculous and it doesn't even make sense pretty much from there to the end and yet i mean honestly just to look at the movie and listen to it and the sound of the score by clint mansell and Mm. the production design and the costumes and the cinematography i mean honestly just as a audio visual experience I, i was i was surprisingly uh okay with um the 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 dopey script just to just to watch it i thought it was um really entertaining i I don't know how it's going to be received uh, in a wider context because it is super weird but i I also thought it was one of those movies that could have could have easily taken a turn into camp and i think the fact that it kind of stands right on that line (laughs) no i mean i i mean i thought this could have been just laughed out of the theater and i thought i mean it's definitely heightened and it's definitely exaggerated but it just didn't get it just didn't have that ring of awful that uh, I I was maybe preparing myself for. Here's my uh, um, prediction. Uh, while it did get, I, you know, I would say generally it got fairly decent reviews, decent to good reviews at Sundance. But you wait till like, you know, I don't know, someone like a Richard Corliss or Kenneth Turan. I think when it gets in the hands of like, you know, A.O. Scott and people like that, I think it's it's they're going to be a lot less favorable. Park Chan-wook always kind of vacillates between deadly serious and the kind of heightened melodrama you're sort of describing. And his films can be silly and sort of walk that line. They can be, but they can also be incredibly fun and incredibly enjoyable. uh, Um, Yeah. 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 I I felt this was kind of like lifeless and, and, and speaking of De Palma, like, you know, passion, his last one, that's a movie that's like, there's a certain level of like it's so ridiculous that it's funny and enjoyable so i get that because some of passion does that for me um but i did not find that in this i feel like aesthetically yes it's uh it's beautiful but is that enough to make a is that enough to make a to warrant a good movie um i also think the aesthetics are um are like like on 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 mescaline or something they're they're like there's the they go into the basement and it's a basement that might as well be from saw nicole kidman's uh bedroom which is like david lynch's red room they have nothing to do with one another they're just like all over the map it's like he just it's like basically to me it was styled to the point of like death it was like completely clinical and completely soulless 
I wonder if it's, I mean, I wonder if it was an issue too of uh, working with English actors. I, I believe Park Chan-wook does not speak English. And if he does, like no. very minimally. No, so. he doesn't. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I wonder if, it, and, and it's kind of interesting because uh, I believe last week or two weeks ago, Kim Ji-woon, another South Korean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. talented filmmaker, had his English language debut with Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Last Stand. That movie is kind of okay, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then Bong Joon-ho, you know, the other really prominent South Korean filmmaker, he's got another, uh, his debut coming out called Snowpiercer, which that sounds awesome. Right. Um, tone yeah. is tone is a thing that like, um, yeah, it sometimes it's not necessarily much the director, but sometimes it's a language thing where like certain things you can get away with in another language and they'll seem like, you know, like voiceover, for example, voiceover to us as americans and north americans a lot of times voice voiceover is really corny and really on the nose and horrible but voiceover in another language can be i find it can be extremely poetic sometimes you know what i mean i mean i guess if you would think that like if you reversed it you might think this is might not be but but the fact is that it is because there's sort of a an enigmatic quality to it because it's in another language um so it's maybe things like that 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 totally didn't work for me i just thought it was absurd and i don't know the matthew good character is just like so silly and so there's no suspense they tell you exactly what happens really really early on and not only that (laughs) they like do these things where like the audience knows who 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 the antagonist is the main character knows who the antagonist is and nobody does anything about it (laughs) And they just let it lie for reasons that are completely baffle me. Like it's just like it's not only just ridiculous; it's just completely illogical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I totally agree that logically it makes no sense, and I I still feel like just stylistically it it is one of the more successful kind of English debuts from a foreign auteur like this. Just because I I think honestly, if this movie had been subtitled, if it had been cast, you know, with Korean actors. Um, it would have gotten raves across the board. I mean, this would be an old boy level kind of international success. And I think the reason that it's under much more intense scrutiny is because it's in English with English actors. And number one, you know, not everything that works tonally, uh, you know, for certain types of uh, foreign directors is going to necessarily translate to English films. And number two, I think people just generally feel like, uh, Somehow when they're reading subtitles, they're watching a smarter movie so they can watch a lot of Asian stuff that doesn't necessarily make any more sense, you know, if it's genre stuff or whatever it is. And they're giving it this pass. I mean, honestly, old boy, I I liked a lot of the movie, but I just thought the kind of last act of that just was like it would have been laughed out of the theater if it had been in English uh, the same movie. So, I mean, we'll see what Spike Lee does with it. But um, yeah, I but yeah, it's uh it's interesting. I I, 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 I hear you on that point, there. but you know, I I well, first of all, one I think once someone re- achieves auteur status, um, there becomes a, a a hive mind group think that that congeals around them and that nothing that they do is ever bad, which I always find really destructive and sort of annoying and disturbing. You know, someone's great, then they're great. Then nothing they can do ever is possibly bad ever again, um, and and. And to that point, I didn't really like Thirst. I thought Thirst was not a very good uh, Park Chan-wook film either. Um, I, th- there was definitely elements that I liked of it, but that was a bit of that was a total mess. And in fact, I, while I enjoyed it much more than Stoker, I would say it, tonally it might even have been a way bigger mess. But then again, it was such a sprawling like 
three or four different stories. I don't know how you guys felt about it, but I I love Thirst. <laughs> I think Thirst is a big mess. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't see that one. I did see the Vengeance trilogy, but not the Thirst yet. Overall, I just I just really enjoyed it, and I found it to be one of his funniest films too. So yeah, it's definitely know. it's definitely funny. It's just I think it's um. I like the first act and I like the third act and the second act is the long middle. Yeah. So like, you know, they stay in that white house or that white room for a really long time in that movie. And that white room might as well have been from a different movie. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he, he's got a pretty bizarre sensibility in all of his films where things like that, just like, it, it sounds almost similar to the way you were talking about the production design in Stoker. Like it just, he, I don't know. There, there's a, there's definitely a weirdness to his movies that, it doesn't always follow logic. That's for sure. But I think what you guys are ultimately talking about is sort of the, you know, it's happened before this, but the Wong Kar Wai, like my blueberry nights effect of, you know, his films can work in another language, but uh, as soon as you get them in English, maybe it just, the silliness seems to come to the forefront and it's, 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 it's inescapable. Yes. And no, I mean, I want, I want to, I want to say that I think this movie had it been subtitled is, is, is not going to be any better. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a silly, pretty cheap, thriller and uh people may like it aesthetically and i guess i can't argue with that but um i i don't think it's gonna be i don't you make that exact movie shot for shot totally exactly the same with uh korean actors and and subtitled it's not gonna be any different fair enough fair enough is there is there a direction that you feel that you're drawn to is there one you feel drawn to where will we go we could be starlight Everybody there knows, and they look at me in a certain way, and they talk to me in a certain way, in a way that you don't look at me yet. Where would we go? I feel like you know. They could be starlings. They could be starlings. Where would we go? Somewhere bright. How do you get there? How do you get there? I'm going to go wherever you go. You know that. Yeah, so Shane Carruth, uh, a long-awaited uh, sophomore feature. Uh, Primer, when did Primer play? 2004 at the Sundance Festival. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, so it's been a while, and we always we heard you know he had another film that he was working on uh, for a while that that hasn't come to fruition yet, and he did some assisting on on Looper. I don't. I think it was kind of. He just helped out with some of the time travel visuals yeah the effects and things like that i think he also just did some consulting yeah so uh good to see that shane kruth uh returned this year with a film proper properly made by him and it's uh, upstream color um cory why don't you give us uh the best breakdown of the film as you can or you know (laughs) explanation as you can uh i'm gonna pass that to rod (laughs) (laughs) He wrote the review on that one. You give the synopsis, and I'll I'll, I'll weigh in with with my thoughts. <laughs> um, I had a diagram that I wrote in my head to explain uh, <laughs> upstream color. I'm not even kidding. Like to, to 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 get on the architecture, and I was drawing it today, and then I forgot some parts of it. But it was a triangle with a, a circle around it, going through the three points. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of explains in a sort of strange elliptical way upstream color, which is like a completely fragmented uh, film that's beautiful and elusive and madden- maddeningly obscure and 
but it's something that's really grown in my mind over time and um the way uh, what is it okay you're asking for a, you're asking for a synopsis synopsis um it's about uh boy meets girl <laughs> not exactly um it's a it starts out as a kind of a little inceptiony type thing mm. girls sort of inceptioned um and hypnotized and, and manipulated and her life falls apart because of it then she meets a then it becomes boy meets girl and and then um there's a love story that that blooms there um and then uh i don't want to give too much well it's hard to give too much away of it but basically they they sort of uh discover that um this sort of inception thing that happens in the beginning um they they uncover a bit of a conspiracy and um then that conspiracy leads to some larger things that get pretty uh, opaque. But also, um, it's a love story, and it's also about the nature of how everything's connected. Um, nature, animals, human beings, love, um, identity. Um, it's definitely not very, very nonlinear. I don't, I don't want to say dreamlike, because I don't think that's quite it. Um, but it's very fragmented, and... It's quite beautiful, and it's something that will resonate in your mind for a long, long time after seeing it. The, the word basically going into the movie was to warn everybody that they're basically going to come out of it probably not understanding exactly what they saw. I mean, that was basically the intro of the movie that uh, John, I believe John Cooper did, uh, the Sundance programming director. And so I was surprised when it started, and for the first 35 or 40 minutes uh, or so, I was kind of proud of myself for basically keeping up with the movie and going, oh, actually, you know, there's uh, not much dialogue here, but I, I, I'm following what's going on. And then at a certain point, I guess it introduces some new characters and becomes a little more complicated and and it definitely lost me somewhere around the hour mark um, as far as understanding exactly what it meant. However, um, as, as Rod was saying, just basically the, um, the, the way the film uses imagery uh, and just really creates a mood. I mean, anyone who's seen those, uh, I believe there's three different teasers out there. Uh, the Shane Kruth has uh, cut for the movie kind of has an idea of what you're in for. He has a really distinctive visual style. It's kind of, it's, basically anti Malik in that it's just very sterile. There's almost a, you know, a, a kind of a dull sheen over everything, but the way the, the film is kind of edited and put together is, is, is really hypnotic. And it seems like something uh, I'm not necessarily, um, this isn't necessarily like my type of movie, but I was never bored. And I, I, it, it never lost me to the point where it, it frustrated me. It made me think, you know, uh, screw this movie. I, I was definitely with it through the end, even as it kind of, you know, left me in the dust a little bit. And, uh, I think that's that, okay though. I think a lot of people were left in the dust. I don't think any, there's not one person in that theater who saw that movie goes that I completely understand what it's about. If you're going into that movie to being like, I, if I did or didn't understand it, then you're doing it wrong. That's not what that movie is about. Yeah. I mean, I thought one of the interesting things, two things, actually, one is having conversations with people right after the movie ended and seeing that everybody picked up different things from the movie. So stuff that I totally had had missed and not gotten other people had gotten and, and kind of vice versa. So it was one of those rare movies where you can, you know, spill out onto the sidewalk afterwards and really have a conversation about. And the other Absolutely. thing that kind of made that even more um 
kind of gratifying and just interesting is the Q&A with Shane Carruth after. And he was not at all kind of this pretentious, like, you know, make up your own mind if you don't get it. He, it was the opposite of that, honestly. He was very <laughs> forthcoming on stage about what what the movie was about when people were asking him kind of point-blank questions about the plot. You know, he mm. kind of jokingly said, oh, so, you know, the plot didn't come through, basically, which, you know, kind of implies that he... He wants people to get to get it. You know, he doesn't want to confuse people. He's just giving his audience a lot more credit than most filmmakers do. And I think that's really um, that's really admirable. And that and I think it is a movie that probably, um, you know, you can pick up different things for it. Not that it's not that the joy of it is necessarily in being some kind of puzzle box, but just that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's de- it's a dense movie and it's um, an enjoyable one, even if even if you don't want to engage on that level, just as kind of a surface piece of um, filmmaking and editing in particular, it's, it's definitely worth watching. Well, Corey, I was going to, you, you mentioned that this isn't necessarily your kind of movie. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit more? And also, are there other films you can even compare? Uh, I know Rod, you know, referenced Inception, but um, I, I, we don't want to give people the wrong idea as to what to expect. Oh, uh, God, there's nothing. <laughs> uh, I guess it's just a little, I mean, it's definitely a little more esoteric than your standard narrative. And oftentimes I feel like movies of this sort, if they don't quite have the filmmaking prowess to back it up, can kind of fall off the cliff into just pretentious nonsense, which will get on my nerves very quickly. But the fact that this movie um, doesn't do that and, and still manages to be as kind of um, cerebral and uh, not difficult, but, you know, a- as it is um, and, and still kind of plays for people who maybe aren't necessarily looking for an art film, but can, you know, go and go in for something a little more interesting. I, I think it, still plays. I will say the, the one thing though is it, it, my biggest criticism with the movie actually has nothing to do with it being able to be comprehended is basically the, um, it, it's, it's, it's great at casting a spell with images and sound and, um, kind of the way it's telling the story. And I found the weakest parts of the movie were actually the scenes between, um, the lead couple, uh, played by, um, Shane Carruth and I, Amy Simons, I, I believe is her name. And their dialogue scenes, for some reason, just had more the ring of a, I don't want to say student film, but definitely a less, um, uh, just a a less sure production than the rest of it. And it seemed to, um, I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue, so it it doesn't sink sink the movie by any means, but it definitely found those to be um, not not of the same caliber of filmmaking as as the rest of it, which was really um, pretty impeccable filmmaking. Was the uh, uh, one of the things I remember so well about Primer is the the dialogue was so specific and just heavy on jargon that like yeah no it's different than that okay D- okay D- dialogue uh, Primer is so dialogue driven yes um this has no dialogue oh the cool, last man. thirty minutes of the movie has no dialogue the last thirty minutes of the movie is like Aphex Twin soundscape imagery <laughs> it's like beautiful and baffling and beguiling and haunting and just like probably some of the most confusing but just fascinating 30 minutes on screen anyone will see this year it's just like i don't know man it's wow. like there's a wonderful like it's like you know just a wonderful abs- exploration of abstractions and and but also not to the point of just there is something there and and but it, it's um it's just uh presented in a way that's so fragmented that um 
it's really up it's a lot of it's up for interpretation and i think those tend to be the movies um that last you know because people discuss them and debate them uh for for years to come and and um and it's, it's also a movie that crystallizes a little bit more after you think about it and sit with it. And it's a movie you have to marinate on, you know, and then and then connections and threads. I was dreaming about it. <laughs> um, I couldn't I couldn't sleep about it one night at Sundance. And um, it was just sort of like stewing in my brain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of that Kubrickian in 2001 thing. Although even that's much more of a, way more of a, a linear narrative, but just that that feeling at the end, where it's like, whoa, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Like time, space, things break down, and it's kind of, um, we're floating. You know what I mean? Like we're yeah. floating now, and 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 the laws of, of 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 things that that we're used to, time and and things like that, are breaking down in this kind of like engrossing, fascinating way. Oh, that sounds awesome, man! And Caruth is planning his own self-distribution. Is that is that still happening? Uh, I believe so, and that kind of uh, that makes sense just because it's such an esoteric <laughs> film. It's it's going to have a a, a a pretty small audience, but the audience that does enjoy it is is going to love it. You know what I mean? Like the art house crowd is just going to really, really respond to this. The people who are willing to take that leap and 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 jump into the abyss with something that. They understand that I'm, you know, the the civilians looking for your for your narrative are just going to be like, forget it. That they shouldn't. I don't even think they should bother, <laughs> unless they're really, really open minded. Yeah. So go in open minded if you're going to see Upstream Color. It sounds awesome. What about the uh, the return of David Gordon Green? Well, it's a remake of an Icelandic movie uh, that came out last year, and I'd, I'd read about it. Uh, it had won a few f- uh, festivals, notably the, the Torino Film Festival in Italy, which is a festival that I was a fan of and have been to a few times. And so I'd heard of the movie, and then when I was looking to do something that was like an intimate two-person character piece set in you know, uh, a burnt-down state park, uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's an art director in New York, and he said, well, you got to check out either way. I said, oh, yeah, I do have to check out either way. And then he said, well, he said you should just remake that movie. And I was like, okay, I'll just get a copy of it, and then I'll go remake it. So that's kind of what I did. I thought it was wonderful. It's terrific. Um, this intimate, small, little pas de deux, two-hander um, that's just like quirky and oddball little film about two men um, and their estrangements and problems and um, how they're – you know they're a total odd couple, but they also empathize and come to understand one another. One another, and it's just basically them. And but then, and David Gordon Green is just so his antennas to everything are just so always up. You know, um, like he's just got a lot of soul, man. I mean, that movie's really funny. It's really soulful. It's really humanistic. Uh, it's really beautiful. Its score and its cinematography are just gorgeous just breathtaking and um uh it's a it's a little bit odd and quiet and 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 small stakes for a lot of it and then it opens up with some these sort of like little visual sequences here and there and it kind of vacillates between those two and then there's two other actors who are in it just for a very brief moment one of them is this old man who's hysterical and steals steals every scene he's in the score is Explosions in the Sky and David Wingo, um, and that score is just really tremendous. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know. If, I, I also don't think I, I, I got the feeling not everybody loved it as much as I did, but I really, re- really responded to it. And I also thought it's like maybe David Gordon Green's best film and oh, wow. a, a great um, merging of his sort of uh, mainstream comedic sensibilities and his sort of poetic observational nature. Yeah. So is this is this going to is this going to make uh, his fans of his early films who kind of just hate the path he's taken? Is this going to make them happier or? I think so. Yeah. 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 And then the, the mainstream people will. I mean, they probably wouldn't have seen the smaller films anyhow. Yeah. yeah I, I think um, it's a nice balance. And I think um, audiences will. Yeah. People who wanted that. I mean, it's not a again, it's not an exact return to that era, um, but it it definitely feels and smells like a little bit here and there and and um i mean on the surface it's very much a return to it but i think there's much more to it than just that we are the east we don't care how rich you are we want all those who are guilty to experience the terror of their crimes it's easy when it's not your life easy when it's not your home but when it's your fault it shouldn't be so easy to sleep at night Especially when we know where you live. Lie to us, we'll lie to you. The East is the the kind of follow-up to uh, uh, Britt Marling and the director Zal Batmanglish. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, yep. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's their, uh, their follow-up to Sound of My Voice, which I felt... Uh, I was a little disappointed by the time I got to it. And maybe that was an expectations thing based off of what I had heard. Um, I felt like that film sound of my voice uh, had deliberate pieces missing to it almost to propel it to a sequel that I don't know if it's ever coming. So I was just kind of was baffled by the film. Really? You thought that? Yeah, I did, man. Yeah. I was a big fan of Sound of My Voice, actually. That was one of the movies that I missed at Sundance two years ago, but caught up with at a screening, I believe, last year uh, before it came out. And um, was really pleasantly surprised by it. And I thought for whatever the minuscule budget they had to work with, there was a lot of style there. And uh, you just got a strong sense of the the filmmaker and um, and uh, particularly of uh, – his and uh, Britt Marling's voice as screenwriters, which I thought was uh, really interesting and distinctive. So I, I was very looking forward to The East, which is a much bigger scale movie, and I believe it's produced by um, Tony and Ridley Scott. Uh, they're Scott Free Productions, and it's kind of uh, taking what they did uh, last time with Sound of My Boy- Voice and uh, building on it um, to be a little more of a traditional thriller, but, but still... Um, very much a companion piece, I thought, to that movie. Uh, just uh, there, there were a lot of motifs in in that earlier movie that, if you enjoyed enjoyed what they were putting down, there's a lot of that in this movie as well. Um, in this, uh, Britt Marling plays um, this woman who works for this private uh, intelligence firm, basically, who goes undercover um, with this group of kind of eco terrorists who who are out there. Um, basically fighting back against corporations who are, you know, destroying their environment and polluting the earth and oil companies and people who are corrupt and they're kind of, you know, doing, doing these large scale stunts to, um, kind of strike back at them. And so she goes undercover, um, with this group, uh, who are called the East and they have a charismatic leader played by, uh, Alexander Skarsgård from, uh, True Blood. Most people know him and, uh, Ellen Page is a member. And so it's kind of a motley crew of, um, people and uh so she um 
basically, you know, kind of breaks her way into this group and then, you know, has the moral crisis of kind of is which side is she really on? And uh, and there's some interesting twists in the movie. Um, and it's 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 solidly entertaining. I'll be really interested to see if this gets a wider audience. I know that Fox Searchlight is putting it out and it had a, you know, um, a comparatively much bigger budget to sound of my voice, although still pretty small, probably compared to most movies. But um, I, I really enjoyed it. Sound of My Voice, by the way, was also Fox Searchlight. Yeah, and you, and you know how much that money that movie that that movie made? It made nothing. Like four hundred and eighty or four hundred eight thousand dollars domestically. Yeesh. They also picked four, up four hundred thousand. Four hundred thousand. Sorry. But oh man. Still, like, not even half a million. Um, which is, you know, I'm uh, not a slight on them, but just I, I just uh, not, not neither on Fox Searchlight or. Um, or on the film, which I liked a lot, but um, it just—I uh, think that's a good example of like a film that gets a lot of buzz and um, doesn't ne- from Sundance and yeah. doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily translate, unfortunately. Well, I mean, the same thing kind of happened to the other film she she put out that year too, Another Earth, like, where is like quite a lot of buzz coming out of it, out of Sundance, and it just did okay, I think. Um, yeah, I don't. I did actually better. Yeah. Uh, but Which, it was also boxers like yeah yeah so they're still yeah. betting on her at least yeah yeah I, and i i like that i think that's sure. commendable so i mean they basically just decided they wanted to be in you know the brit marling business and so you know to put out her first two movies and bankroll the next one i think is you know that's that's really respectable yeah and it is smart I, rod i believe you said she's talented and i i agree she's she's that's definitely not Zell, too he's he's very talented as well sure sure yeah yeah and i uh, it is exciting to see what they will do next. And it's cool that they're kind of, you know, they're creating these projects themselves and, you know, getting them out there. Um, yeah. My my only issue with the movie is it does get a little bit silly at times. Like you really kind of want to uh, dive in with both feet and just believe everything that's happening. But there is some uh, some of the dialogue definitely goes a little bit uh, over the top. But, uh, but uh, you know, th- those nitpicks aside, I think you could still really have fun with it. And it's a, definitely a big leap for um, Saul as a filmmaker, who I'm definitely still uh, still a fan of. Cool. Show me your world, Chris. Well, I thought we'd start with Crouch Tram Museum. Great. Dear Mum, Yorkshire is lovely. Not like you said at all. They can smile and they do sell my pasta sauce. The caravan bed is quite short, but Chris is a sensitive lover. (laughs) Hope you can be happy for me. Love, Tina. Yeah, good girl. You are going to pick that up? I didn't do that. If you don't pick up this excrement immediately, then I'm going to have to inform the National Trust. Report that to the National Trust, mate. I don't want this to ruin our holiday. Get in. Never thought about murdering innocent people before. It's not a person, Tina, he's a Daily Mail reader. Say one word and it's... I get it, it's just thinking outside the box. (laughs) The police are pursuing a ginger-faced man and an angry woman. You're a liability. You're just like your mother. Has he gone wrong? Yeah, a bit. You didn't let him see you do number twos, did you, Tina? 
So Sightseers is the new uh, movie from Ben Wheatley, who directed Kill List um, a year or two back, which was a just insane <laughs> kind of genre-busting, kind of a thriller, kind of a horror movie, kind of a British crime drama, and just um, one of my absolute favorite movies of that year. I mean, it was on my yes. top ten list, so I was um, – Super impressed with Kill List. I brought several several groups of people back to the theater to see it. Yeah, have you seen his first film by chance, Down Terrace? No, I, I still haven't. It's, oh it's my been God. on Netflix. Is it is it great? It's great, man. Yeah, you need to see it, especially if you if you enjoyed Kill List too. Um, Corey, you got to see Down Terrace, man. It's it is on Watch Instant, and it's it's so oh, it's it's so hilarious. The 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 two lead performances are by an actual father and son, and you you just cannot replicate that sort of authentic chemistry that they have together um so yeah yeah definitely check out down terror so yeah i've loved both of his first two films here so um with that uh you you loved kill list uh obviously your expectations were high for sightseers yeah and i i, I like sightseers it, it, i mean it's definitely hitting much different notes than kill list did it's this really super dark comedy uh about this couple of uh, you know, fairly plain looking uh, couple who go out on this uh, road trip um, in in England to see, you know, these various rural sites and parks and things and just end up getting in some dark, dark kinds of trouble along the way. I don't know, Rod, do you want to elaborate <laughs> without giving too much away? Um, well, first of all, yeah, uh, compared to Kill List, it is it is the polar opposite. But it is, I loved it wholeheartedly. Nice. Loved every second of it, every fiber of it. I, if, you know, I didn't really had to scream at the rafters because it's, it's not really a Sundance film. It's already played Cannes. It's already played Toronto, Mm -hmm. but it is terrifically pitch black, very English, very hysterical. I howled laughing through so much of it. I've got a very twisted sense of humor and the movie's got a really fucked up twisted sense of humor. I think um, Ben Wheatley definitely has a twisted sense of humor. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it's a love story. It's a, it's a very fucked up dark love story about two people who go on the road, um, on a road trip and discover, um, a lot more about each other, um, sort of dark secrets and, um, about one another. And they just, and, but discover that they love themselves, love each other just as much anyhow. And uh, they get into some pretty crazy mayhem and it gets darker and darker and more ridiculous. But in a very, very, uh, it's just really fucking funny, man. It's really enjoyable. I can't recommend it enough. Oh, that's great. That's great. And I mean, he's got, he's, he's like more prolific than Woody Allen right now. Like the guy, he's insane. Yeah. And it's, it's so exciting that, he's getting traction with every film and he seems like his budgets are getting bigger here and there. And, mm-hmm. um, I really just think, yeah, he's, he is an exciting new fresh voice. And I really like that he shoots digitally and he kind of embraces the look of digital. He doesn't try to mm-hmm. like mimic the the look of film. Like a lot of filmmakers do, you know, he doesn't get lost in that. He kind of embraces the look, uh, the low budget look that he gets with his digital cameras. And I, I do, I really appreciate that because it has its own nice aesthetic to it. That really works. So, mm-hmm. That that is that is great to hear. I cannot wait to see Sightseers. Um, yeah, he's he's one of the most exciting people coming out of the UK right now. He's just he can seems he seemingly can do it all, and he's like a an exciting like Nicholas Winding Winding Refn like talent yeah. that I don't know if people have put him on the same par because 
his films aren't necessarily as cool. Like, there's nothing cool about Sightseers, but that's okay. It's fucking just as good as any, you know, film that's desperately trying to put off an air of cool, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's great, man. Yeah. Um, uh, how about, I, I know both of you saw the the return of Richard Lenklater, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delpy. And um, Rod, I thought your review was really interesting about this. Uh, it almost seemed like you were kind of wrestling with how much you, you liked the film because of how harsh some of the, especially the the kind of final third, I think you talked about in your yeah, review. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, you know, it's just interesting. I think both Corey and I, from, you know, I can't say compared to everybody, but, you know, every review that I saw was just like very glowing. Everybody was just like, this is the best one of the trilogy. Uh, it, I heard some people call it a masterpiece and people were, you know, really, really loving it. And, and both Corey and I, when we spoke to each other afterwards, we were like, that was good. But man, that was like challenging and emotionally brutal and harsh. And I think on some level, it it it, it uh, affected our enjoyment of the film um, because there's some, you know, some real it's like the, the, the it's like the real version of this is 40. Like, you know, uh. the, the ugly, the, the real ugly version of this is 40 where it gets into stuff, some stuff that's pretty nasty and pretty, um, but also very realistic. Um, maybe, and maybe people just, maybe I, I just, the sense that I got is I just saw raves and maybe if I look deeper into their text, there would be, uh, some texture about that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's good, but it's, it's hard to, to, to say it's as, as jo- enjoyable as the others because, um, that last third is, is, um, is some like, kind of like tough love kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's really, um, it's really dark and, it, and it's kind of almost even troubling at times. Did you not expect, uh, did you not expect the film to go that way just based off of kind of the, the lighter tone that the last two films have had? Because I, you know, before sunset, while, you know, fairly light does, does deal with the, you know, the sort of, you right. know, these, these characters are getting older and there's a sort of sadness and not, maybe not a desperation, but you know, there's, they acknowledge the, you know, a lot of the, just the ideas of getting older in that film. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't care to think about what to expect. I just went in blind and just took it for what it was. Corey, your thoughts. Yeah, um, I agree with Rod. It's tough. The, the The first movie in the series was one that I wasn't crazy about when it came out. Um, pretty sure I probably watched it on DVD or something uh, and, and liked it. But, you know, it's one of those super talky Linkletter things where he's just going to spew about, you know, just countless topics. And it, it's one of those things that reminds me a little bit of, like, you know, what you would talk about in college or what people maybe would talk about in college that you would be forced to listen to, you know, just <laughs> these sorts of people. And and sometimes it works, and there's definitely some great stuff in the movie, but sometimes it can it could be a little much. Before Sunset, however, I think is nearly a perfect movie and just basically takes everything that was kind of, you know, theoretical and what's life going to be and we're young and naive and just set it in such a just real and yearning and regret and, and, and all of their conversations just were suddenly just completely um, just meaningful and, and no longer about, you know, kind of just, yeah, I just keep describing it as basically like college student conversations. It's very youthful and naive. But, right, but, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, and that's what makes the first movie work better in retrospect yeah. is seeing where the series goes and then seeing it as, you know, act one of this, you know, uh, story of these two people's lives. So, but regardless, I, I think two is just, you know, a 
perfect movie and so joyous and the way that it ends is so perfect and, you know, mysterious and, and sexy and, you know, all of that. So, you know, not knowing what to expect, where these characters would be, you know, what I was walking into in this, I have to admit, I was definitely a little disappointed, particularly in, in the first hour of the movie. I mean, it takes kind of a while to get into the meat um, of what I felt the movie was really about. And it, one of the other things that kind of made it stand out is there's a handful of supporting characters who get screen time. Um, I don't even necessarily need to say why for people who want to go in blind, but basically it's not, it, it's not just as much the two of them as, as maybe the last couple of movies were. And I, I found myself getting um, not bored, but just, but just wishing it would kind of focus in and, 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 say something new and then basically something happens maybe an hour or so into the movie and then the last third is just searing and brutally emotionally honest and great but not um but kind of a bummer <laughs> honestly is <laughs> like as much as it i i mean i give it complete credit for following these characters to what would be the truthful moment in their lives nine years later it, it, there's definitely something that that lets some of the air out of the balloon, you know, for anyone holding the uh, the last the image of them from yeah, from sunset the in their bubble. heads. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's something definitely brave about that. But um, it's yeah, it's it's a little bit of a bummer, uh, as as Rod was saying. But 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 still, I I mean, that's some of my favorite stuff in the movie is is the last forty minutes when it gets it gets so real. Um, there's, you know, it's, it, it really lives up to kind of the, the, the hype in, in that act, I think. I like the first act. I, I think it, it really orients you to these people and where they're live. You have to get reoriented to where, to where these people are now. It's nine years later and you have to become adjusted to where they are, who they are, um, and, and, and where they are emotionally and psychologically. So the film without getting into, you know, gives you all that information through dialogue, but without through exposition, it's just sort of natural. You know, it's a very, very talky film, just like the other ones are. You know, the first one you said, you know, Corey is very talky, but man, the other two films are just as talky. You know, what I mean, that's all they're about. They're they're dialogue-driven films uh, through and through. And um, and so the first half, like you know, in through this, that you know, they're vacationing in Greece. That's no like surprise or anything like that. That's in the in the, the, the basic synopsis. But they're there and. Um, and and so they you know they're vacationing with other people and and then it's a lot of like very Richard Linklater ideas about life and love and f philosophical conversations, um, things like that. And and then you know they they go off on their own, and that's when the two of them sort of like, you know, just they they're uh, they're free of some of their responsibilities and then they uh, uh, they eventually you know it's fine at first but then they they kind of get into it and and just like any fight with two people. Who, who get together like you you start digging holes and everyone's like the next thing you know everyone's like you know 12 feet deep in their fight <laughs> mm -hmm. so so it's so it is very realistic i guess is what you're saying but yet yeah it's it's gonna bump some people out i guess um yeah i mean i don't think it bummed me out like as much as it did Corey, but it's definitely like people who are going for uh, it's, it is the logical extension of where this series should go. Mm -hmm. Um, but for those who are stuck in their maybe 20 something romantic, you know, zone that, that bubble's definitely burst. It's, <laughs> we get, we get into the reality of what, 
this is 40. What happens when you're 40 and you have family and, and, and you're no longer daydreaming, uh, 20 something adolescents who, you know, you're, we're beyond that now. And, and, uh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's also brave and, and, and smart and just wise to go there because, um, that's, that's where these people are now. And that's where the, these actors and filmmakers are now. And so that's, that's where they decided to, to place the story. And, makes a lot of sense i i actually i i know they they kind of said like you know maybe maybe this is done maybe it's not i would love to see them revisit it again in in another nine years because uh it'll it'll be interesting to see where it goes there yeah they could just do it like the uh the seven up series and just revisit kind of yeah 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 i i I wouldn't be against that i mean there's so the the character work and the yeah just the naturalistic dialogue it's uh there's a lot to love with those films for sure so do we know who picked up who 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 picked up before? Sony Pictures Classics. Okay, yep. so yeah, they got a they got a good distributor behind them then. So mm-hmm. yeah, probably one of the biggest outside of Fox Searchlight, you know. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, why don't we uh, just kind of wind down here? And I, I know there's plenty of titles we haven't mentioned. Um, Corey, I know you're a big fan of Toys House. Yeah, um, I I really dug Toys House. It was definitely one of my favorite movies, probably just next to uh, Anthem Body Saints at the festival. Um, it's Kind of uh, people have compared it to like a Amblin movie from the 80s, kind of like a Goonies thing. But it really has its own kind of comic voice, which I, I thought was really um, refreshing. I feel like a lot of movies um, in the last decade or so of, of the certain type really are – you can see the Wes Anderson influence or at least taking from the same influences that he's taking from. And it's a lot of that kind of droll um, – humor and uh, that kind of thing and and this really is not not at all that and it really has its own kind of just weird wavelength that it gets on it's basically about these three um 14 year old boys who are kind of fed up with their overbearing parents and decide to run away into the woods and they build this house where they're decide they're going to live off the land and become men and uh so that's what they do and it it's just this really kind of sweet and offbeat and uh, just just really great little um, comedy. Uh, the director, uh, Jordan uh, Vogt Roberts, Vogt Roberts, something yeah. like that, uh, did this short a couple years ago called Successful Alcoholics yes. that I think was a pretty um, That's pretty a great big deal. Yes, Everybody loved that short. Yeah. So I think fans of that and, and hopefully a much wider audience will um, will find this movie. I, I, I really dug it. It's got... Um, Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally in supporting roles. Allison Brie from Community and Mad Men, um, and the three the three lead kids are all are all great. Nice, yeah, I remember successful alcoholics. I felt did more in a half an hour than Smashed from last year did in like an hour and a half. I felt like and and was much funnier and yet more biting and realistic. I feel like and even though it was clearly much more of a heightened comedy, you know. So that's that's good to hear that his his feature debut here is. Is, uh, was yeah, enjoyed. that's a great little short. I saw that on, on a lark at South by Southwest just to like kill time um, to went to see a bunch of shorts collection. And I was like really taken by that. I was like, holy wow, this is great. And then and then everybody kept an eye out for it, or at least in our group, because I was talking about it. And then it came to Funny or Die. And then everybody watched it. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. Rod, any other? I mean, I, I did want to hear some more of your thoughts on Touchy Feely, the, the next Lynn Shelton film. And you were kind of, kind of, you know, middling on it. I, I know you gave I it think, a mostly positive review. Well, sort of, but yeah, I, I think I liked it more than you did, right, Corey? Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> it could have been her best work. Yeah. It it it's um, 
there's some great ideas there about it's about a family and one's a massage therapist and and her who is um rosemary dewitt Mm -hmm. and her brother josh pace that great character actor that everyone knows but can't really place but you've all seen him a thousand times he plays her older brother and he's a dentist and he's very much kind of the uh uh Without being stereotypical, but he's sort of this stereotypical dentist who's like, you know, you know, they say dentists have a high rate of suicide and they're boring and and they're very like that kind of thing. Is that that's sort of what he's like? And um, then, then the revolving characters, Alan Page is his daughter, and Scoot McNary is um, Rosemary DeWitt's uh, boyfriend, and uh, they sort of have this transference of energy in in a way like uh, her life goes negative and his life goes positive. Um, she's a massage therapist. He's a dentist. She develops an, an aversion to uh, skin and touch. So that obviously hampers with her job. And all of a sudden he sort of gets like um, uh, in, in the same way. He sort of gets – one could read it as he, he gets her healing powers or something. But all of a sudden his dentist practice completely takes off and everybody's loving him and, and he, he's like cured people. And um, it goes from there. And so it's got some really, really interesting ideas about uh, healing and identity and uh, loss of identity and, and um, enlightenment and things like that. Um, who's the uh, other eld- the, uh, the other uh, therapist, the Reiki therapist? Um, Allison Janney? Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. so good in that. I mean, Allison Janney's great but she's so good in it um so there's lots to love about that movie but it just it doesn't quite land i guess is the best way to put it and Corey, there's a lot of good threads but it doesn't quite congeal them in can doesn't yeah coalesce i i agree with rod i maybe liked it even a little bit less um i i love rosemary dewitt the lead actress in the movie um from uh, you know mad men people would know her and uh, a bunch of other things and Your sister, I, sister. Heard, yeah exactly yeah. um uh, her last movie, um, so it's 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 okay. I, I Scoot McNary's in it too as a bike messenger. Ellen Page is in it. It's fun to see them pop up uh, in smaller supporting roles. It just didn't it just didn't really do anything for me. It didn't have enough going for it. It kind of kind of seemed like it didn't really know what it wanted to be, and maybe they were trying to find that while they were filming it. And I'm just not sure if they got there. It it, it wasn't bad. It it was just fine. Um, probably just give some nods to the spectacular now, which I think yeah. Corey and I both liked in the same kind of way that I think maybe people were a little bit more bowled over by it than we were, but there's, um, a lot of strong performances, um, and it's a, a very good effort. And, and I think overall, I, I even liked it better than smash. And so I think James is, um, definitely a filmmaker to keep, to continue keeping an eye on. And I think it's a, it's a very solid movie. It's very good. Yeah. Director James Ponsolt, it, it was his follow-up to smash. Yeah. Yep. And sounded like it had sort of a similar sort of style. I mean, it's about a, it's a, is it about a, like a popular high school student who has an alcohol problem? Alcohol is a part of the movie, but I wouldn't say it's, uh, it's more like it's there, but I don't know if it's as, is like, whereas it smashed is a, is a very, you know, integral part of Smash. I think here it's more in the the texture of you know, in high school we all drank and we all drank a lot and mm-hmm. got drunk, which I think is is pretty normal for teenagers. Maybe the only reason we haven't talked about it as much, just because that seems to be uh, one of the movies that got definitely the most kind of praise coming out of the festival. And I don't have much to add. I mean, it's great performances. I loved 
I actually loved uh, James Ponsoldt's last movie, Smashed, and um, maybe I didn't like this, not didn't like this, but uh, uh, prefer that one, just a slight edge over this one, but it's got great performances. Miles Teller is, you know, clear, clearly going to be a much bigger deal um, after this movie. Um, he's really yeah. great in it, and it's got good uh, supporting performances from uh, Brie Larson, um, uh, Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights, who it's always great whenever he pops up in anything. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee shows up uh, kind of briefly, and uh, uh, yeah, every everybody's good. It's a, it's a really great kind of a uh, little more realistic um, kind of teen coming of age movie than maybe uh, people are going to be used to. It, it definitely um, uh, definitely a little more uh, grounded than like something uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer, which the uh, the screenwriters oh, yeah, uh, wrote yeah. that as well. But it's it's a whole different sort uh, style of movie completely. So. Yeah, I'll be I'll be curious to see how people react to it because it's it's a much more sobering and serious look at teenage life than than your average like yeah like Five Hundred Days of Summer, which is romantic and and uh, but also illusory and kind of you know and heightened and, and kind of fantastical. Nice, nice. Well, yeah, uh, an hour and a half of talking about Sundance, and we haven't even discussed the film that won the Grand Jury Prize, Fruitvale, which I don't think any of us saw. We didn't. We didn't even have a review of, did we? Nope. We all missed that. I mean, there's not you know Sundance is Sundance. It's hard. I was only yeah. there for Friday four days, so I jammed in as many movies as I could, but I missed, there's still lots of stuff I would have loved to see now. Uh, that, I think it's Blue Capri sounded really good. I missed that. I missed Fruitvale. Um, Corey saw Afternoon Delight, which sounds really good. Yep, I yep. missed that. Catherine Hans, a really good uh, uh, up-and-coming comedic actress who doesn't really get her due, who sounds like she did in that movie. Oh, she's um, amazing. Amazing in the movie. And I, I've been reading around a little bit, and I'm surprised to see some of the reviews are uh, – are are not nearly as as head over heels for it as I was. I mean, the, looking at the Hollywood Reporter, they call it like an off-putting comedy, and and calling the character self-absorbed. It feels almost like a little bit of reverse sexism, where in the movie where the middle-aged you know guy is kind of listless, uh, you know, he's allowed to to kind of have that experience. But when it's woman, I think people. Um, feel differently about it, and that's been interesting to see that reaction because I, I love the movie. It was a total surprise, just because I don't. The movie's basically about this um, uh, Silver Lake couple, well-to-do, young thirties. You know, have a young um, young child and a little bit bored with their sex life, so they go to a strip club one night to spice it up, and then they end up bringing home this stripper to live with them. And that sounds like a very broad premise, and that's basically what. I expected walking into the movie, you know, just from reading the synopsis, and I was really surprised at how um, uh, just emotionally on point and uh, textured it was, and funny, but not in a broad way. And uh, it was um, it was really one of the best movies I saw at Sundance. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. And then yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that that you know you guys weren't even able to see some of these other films that were praised so so highly, like Fruitvale, it just shows what a what a strong year it must have been at Sundance. Yeah, I definitely I get having never been there before. I do 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 still get the sense that it was probably one of the best years in a long time. That there was a lot of good material, and I can probably think of like. 15 films that I still didn't see that I'd like to catch up on. I'd love to see the Lake Bell movie. Um, I'm very curious about um, the, is it uh, Crystal Fairy? Um, which, which Corey, you liked quite a bit, right? Yeah, that, that was another one. I, I went in with no expectations and really loved it. 
Yeah, Sebastian that. Silva. Yeah, yeah. I'm very, I'm very curious about that. Um, Michael Sarah come back. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's seems sounds like there's. I mean, I caught one documentary, so I think there's still like, concussion sounds really good. So, uh, in a way, I'm. Uh, I'm bummed that I missed stuff, but I also feel like I have lots more to look forward to this year, which is good. You know, I feel yeah. like that I could see another 15 to 20 films from Sundance that are probably really good. So, yeah, definitely. That definitely seems to be the, the, the thing with uh, Sundance is a lot of the, the strong films do, do eventually make their way to theaters. So I think everybody out there should, should just keep their eye on the ones listed here. And uh, if there's any titles you're curious about that we didn't discuss, uh, you should definitely look at our Sundance coverage over at playlist on IndieWire. Uh, I think you can find everything, uh, every links to all our reviews and uh, sort of a wrap up of the festival coverage and the Sundance wrap five best films of the festival uh, that was written by Oliver Littleton. So make sure to check out that uh, for more of our Sundance coverage. And uh, I think we'll put this episode to bed, uh, gentlemen. But uh, Corey Everett, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, same with you, Rodrigo Perez. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Good night, gentlemen. Talk to you later. Thanks. Later.